0: Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audio-Visual. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is the recipient of a grant from the Regional Arts and Culture Council. When someone close to us dies, having a reminder of them that you can see every day and keep close to you can be a great comfort. So it's no surprise I'm drawn to Lori Mason's Memorial Quilts. Each piece that she creates is thoughtfully designed with the deceased loved one in mind. She gets to know about them and transforms garments like their favorite Hawaiian shirts, their judges' robes, uniforms, and other personal fabrics into a piece of art that reflects their lives. Head over to lorimasondesign.com and check out examples of how she honors each individual's unique life with her art. Her process is well-documented and will give you a sense of the curiosity and intention that she brings to each quilt project. It's a wonderful gift we can give ourselves, snuggling under a quilt that's an artful remembrance and celebration of those we love. Head over to lauriemasonsign.com or to our show notes to learn more. Gratitude and Greatness explores the different ways we grieve, the gratitude that allows us to persevere, and the greatness we discover along the way, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. From his childhood in Brooklyn to his adult life in Portland, Oregon, the arts and music have been a constant thread in Andre Middleton's life. As a Black man and father of a young teen, Andre saw a vacuum in philanthropic outreach to Black, Brown, Indigenous, and LGBTQ kids. So he stepped into that space to create the nonprofit Friends of Noise, supporting and empowering young people as they learn hands-on fundamentals of the music business. A self-described code switcher, very much aware of the racism he has confronted on a daily basis andre has navigated through life by steering clear of confrontation choosing to adapt to the different places and spaces he found himself until now as the executive director of a nonprofit that serves young people andre finds himself as a leader and mentor to kids kids who are looking to him as racism is centered in our national conversation. His work is at the very forefront of Portland's protests, from setting up sound for Black Lives Matter events to delivering powerful speeches about the need for widespread systemic change. Whether it's TikTok kids disrupting a hateful rally or our young people taking to the streets night after night in protest, the change that we're seeing is driven by our youth. The greatest role some of us Gen Xers may play is one of mentorship and support. Grief is part of so many people's daily experience only because they do not fit into the cis-normative patriarchal system that is the framework of how we live in this country. Grief is something we've been conditioned to keep to ourselves. While we stay strong and carry on, it's far past time that we witness and acknowledge the grief and struggles of people who are Black in America.
1: My mom and I lived on a very short, small block near what's now called the Barclay Center called St. Felix Street, and that had a profound effect on me. I remember distinctly people, you know, lining and spending time on the stoops in the early evenings and drinking sodas, like Tab. I remember my mom, or or like Pepsi Free. (laughs) It was a very bohemian lifestyle. You know, a lot of macrame, a lot of bell-bottom, blue jeans, listening to Cat Stevens and Stevie Wonder and Janice Ian. You know, it wasn't idyllic, but it was close to it. I wasn't so much aware of race then. I mean, what kids are. But, you know, as I look back on it, I remember most of the faces looked like me. At least every two to three years, we moved. And that was either to a new place or a new neighborhood, which meant that I went to a lot of different schools, went to private schools, public schools, Episcopalian schools, prep schools, good neighborhoods, bad neighborhoods. Often took public transportation to get to them. So even if I moved, I might still go to the same school because my mom might not have told them about the address change. I led a very solitary life because, you know, I was either the new kid or I was leaving. Mm. So that's made me very, very independent, very much a code switcher, a bridge builder. So at times I find myself going either way where I can either be the gregarious life of the party because I'm, you know, meeting new people and I want to make a good impression. Or I could be the person who doesn't show up at the party at all because i know i'm not going to really get attached to them so what's the point i was a geek a nerd i was soft i was not tough i was the kind of kid when i was growing up who'd get a sneaker stolen from him at some point you learn defensive mechanisms of avoidance you know you learn how to you know read the room and or read the bus or read the train or read the neighborhood to avoid that kind of confrontation. And when I moved to Portland, I said, okay, I'm going to stay on this side of town. When I first moved here, I wasn't kicking it up by Peninsula Park. I wasn't kicking it off of Albina or Alberta or Killingsworth. No doubt because I moved here and, you know, the media at the time was, you know, blaring it for who anybody would listen of how that was a drug infested, gang infested part of town. You know, on a couple of, we're going to be dangerous nights some guys that I would know a pre issue would, we'd end up at a party on Rosa Parks. And that was a world away from where I was living in downtown Portland.
0: And what'd you think of it? I mean, did you really think it was as scary as what you heard? It's so funny coming from Brooklyn to hear you say that.
1: It's interesting. On one level, it was as scary because it was still unfamiliar. You know, I mean, I had a lifetime of growing up in Brooklyn, and I knew streets, I knew avenues, I knew how to navigate the train, I knew how to get home at a moment's notice. But in Portland, this was new territory. I didn't understand the triumet bus system. One night when I was leaving Portland State, I jumped back on a bus not knowing what symbol it was or a route it was, thinking that you could eventually just connect with what you needed. You know, you'd find a map you'd make the connection. I ended up on the other side of the Selwood Bridge at like one o'clock in the morning and had to walk all the way back home. That was a quick lesson in you don't want to get too far out of downtown because you don't know where you are.
0: We know that women can be really cautious about walking home alone at one in the morning. And, you know, you just think, well, guys can just walk home in the middle of the night and they're not so afraid. Maybe no one's going to see you as an easy target, but maybe someone's going to see
1: you as a threat. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I know that over the years, when I was in my 20s, early 30s, how I would still walk on the outside of cars as opposed to walking on the sidewalk. You know, growing up in Brooklyn, that was to make sure that no one would jump out at you from an alleyway or from behind a stoop. But here in Portland, it was to make sure that you weren't too close to somebody's house. And so I might say, hey, there's a stranger. There's a strange black man walking around. There's a definite sense of street smarts that I felt that I had to acquire growing up in Brooklyn that had to be modified and had to be adapted for living in Portland, Oregon. My first night out when I moved to Portland was to be with a cousin who lives in Eugene, who grew up in Eugene. And we ended up at this underage club called Scoochies, or it might've been <laughs> called Quest, something like that. Okay. And um, that had been there for a while. Cause I remember going there many years later, but my first night out, we ended up heading there cause we were both underage. And I distinctly remember some white guy in a red Jeep with stars and bars on the back with the Confederate flag who literally yelled at me, you know, nigger go home. <sighs> and uh, on one level, I was ready to square up because no one had called me that word since I had been attacked by a bunch of kids in Queens for daring to roller skate through their neighborhood. But then it, it occurred to me, Andre, you have no idea where you are right now. You know, you don't know where the safe space is. You don't know what the tone or the mood of the police is in this town. So you just grin and bear it and keep pushing. You know, I've... Definitely gotten my fair share of what are you doing here looks from people when I dare to not know where I was in the context of, well, look, I'm at a spot in Marine Drive where they sell motorcycle parts. And I can tell they don't get too many black people looking for motorcycle parts in this spot in Marine Drive. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, look, I'm sledding with friends on ice blocks and towels in Washington Park. And people are like, hey. You're like the odd guy out. And then oftentimes I'd be the one Black person in a group of people. You could see how those group of people were treated differently. There's a level of acceptance where I was the oddity. Now, granted, the moment I open up my mouth and they hear that I'm articulate and I'm nice, I know how to say my yes sir and yes ma'ams, that their guard drops. But there's too many times where things never get to go that far before something dangerous can happen.
0: The fact that, that is always back of mind or maybe even front of mind. And I just think about just the level of anxiety and I'm not trying to put that on you, but just, there must be a certain constant level of anxiety having to think about that.
1: Oh yeah. And, you know, sadly, if you're not a physically fit heteronormative cis man, we all, many people have that level of anxiety. If you're disabled, how can I navigate this space? Will I get the help and support that I need? If you're a woman, you know, can I navigate this bar, this restaurant, this you know, athletic facility and not be accosted? So many people go through the calculation, the notion that, you know, every day we've gotta calculate, you know, who we're talking to and where we're walking to. And that's not just for drug-addled neighborhoods. It's for prep schools. It's for casinos. It's for bars. It's for public transportation. Mm -hmm. We're all doing this mental calculation of how am I safe and who's here. It's a shame that we all don't realize that we're all subject to the whims of heteronormative white supremacy and how some people are sidling up to that and saying, oh, I'm going to be as heteronormative and as white as I can be versus not having that level of safety.
0: If you'd like to support our work with grief, gratitude, and greatness, consider becoming a backer on Patreon. Your support allows us to deliver conversations that help to dissolve the stigma and evolve our culture around grief. You'll find a link to contribute via Patreon in the show notes. And if you have a business that supports people who are listening to our show, let's talk about how you can sponsor an episode or two or three.
1: Friends of Noise started because I found my purpose in creative community engagement. I was working back in 2014. For what was then a cable access station called P- Portland Community Media, even though my job title was a scheduler or I actually scheduled content to go in the air, I was more drawn to the idea of community engagement and trying to f- recruit more people to tell their stories and to share their narratives on the airwaves. So that's what I put a lot of my time into, sometimes to the chagrin of my supervisors. And because I found so much enjoyment and fulfillment in that, I left PCM and ended up working for our local regional arts and culture council called RAC. I worked in the community engagement department as a community engagement specialist. And one of my tasks, in addition to meeting people and sharing RAC's resources, was I took over the production and management of a professional development workshop series for artists. And one of the events that I put on in that portfolio was something called The Happening, which was a form about the music industry in Portland, kind of a who's who, kind of a state of the state when it comes to how can Rack better support independent musicians. And this is something that resonated with me because I used to be a bouncer back at La Luna and I loved, you know, Pine Street and Sotericon. So the idea of supporting local musicians really resonated After I held this first event called The Happening, a dialogue started because the issue that people most wanted to talk about was the lack of all-ages spaces. In late 2014, there was a very popular club that lived downtown called Backspace. And it was right in the bus mall. It was easy for young people to get to poetry, live music, no alcohol. And due to some myopic regulations regarding fire prevention and sprinkler systems that weren't grandfathered into these old buildings, Backspace had to close down. And the music community that I was a part of was really incensed about that because they saw that, you know, all ages music spaces were incubators. They were proving ground and testing ground and places where young people can express themselves. So about 20 people, including myself and people from My Voice Music, Rock Camp for Girls, X-Ray FM, Kill Rock Stars, CD Baby, Rumblefish then list goes on, young audiences started to get together and started just talking about how could we do it differently? How could we make something that was sustainable? I ended up kind of just kind of leaning into and taking a bit of charge and lead, I think because it really struck home to me being a parent of at then, you know, 15 year old and thinking about what kind of space could I create for her that we could experience, you know, simultaneously and together. So um, Friends of Noise grew out of those meetings. You know, our first event was basically just planning. Our first, you know, activities was creating a database of youth and adult artists that would want to play our shows. We dreamed of having our own physical space, which technically we still don't have. And we said, well, how do we do this without having a space? You know, so we've begged, borrowed and stolen space and time and resources from Disjecta, from PICA. We got stuff from Metro, Portland Parks and Rec. You know, Human Solutions, Stevens Creek Crossing, there's been a lot of people who've supported us because we put every dime and dollar into supporting young people. One of our first early purchases was to buy our own PA system so we could start renting it. We immediately turned around and started loaning that PA system out, teaching young people how to use it, teaching young people how to put it together and take it apart. We've evolved to this point where we do basically three things. The first thing we do is that we teach professional development to teenagers. Like we said, how to set up a PA, how to be an independent career, how to get on YouTube or how to get on SoundCloud, how to make your own merch. How do we give young people the basic understanding and tools of the industry they want to thrive in? Then we give them an opportunity to put those new skills to work by hosting and producing all ages concerts. So they make the posters, they make the flyers, they run the door, they set up the lights, they're booking the bands. And how are they getting a better understanding of both sides of the equation on stage and off?
0: That's incredible.
1: Oh, yeah. No, it's been super empowering. It's great to see young people own an evening that was successful, to see them amongst their friends and even strangers, you know, really own this process and own the smiles and the excitement. That's the funnest part of what I do is seeing young people really thrive in that environment. The last thing that we do is that because we give young people an opportunity to perform and get that experience of performing, we've started a talent agency where we are getting young people paid gigs for other people like the trailblazers or mercy Corps or
0: incredible new
1: avenues of youth fundraisers outdoor events we make sure that we advocate for them to get paid all of our shows we pay our kids sometimes it's 20 bucks sometimes it's 100 bucks depending on the grant funding or the door yeah but that's basically where friends of noise does
0: that's incredible Tell me more about the kids you bring into Friends of Noise. Like, how do they find out about it? How do they get engaged with it?
1: I've been advocating from day one that our programming needs to be centered in East Portland and in North Portland and how we bring resources to underserved and the kids that look like me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm a African-American male. I'm a Black man in America. And so much of the music, arts, music, philanthropic music industry, it's really great people that are predominantly white and are coming from a punk rock aesthetic that I think ends up not being as welcoming to young people of color and young people who live in urban environments. So... We've been systematically and with the level of attention, you know, making sure that we are availing ourselves and putting up the welcome mat to kids that live in East Portland. So that means collaborating with Friends of the Children. That means collaborating with the Rosewood Initiative. That means talking with Open School East. That means talking with the Boys and Girls Club. That means talking with Home Forward that provides low-income housing and vouchers to a variety of families and kids across the region. So that's been our primary focus.
0: That's incredible that you've created this and it's so needed. I'm thinking about your latest organization that's come out of Friends of Noise.
1: The collective is now called Youth Power PDX. And that is a rotating collective of young people who want to create something at the intersection of arts and activism. This year, we got four young people. We're down to three now because one of them had to bow out due to life circumstances. And that core three is programming poetry, music, spoken word, personal essays, and creating a now digital hub for all these um, forms of communication, interaction to happen together. We had planned to have a physical event at Open School East, but obviously that didn't happen because of the pandemic. So we transitioned to online. We're buying digital recorders. We're interviewing people I have a radio show that's part of Friends of Noise and X-Ray FM, and we invite people to come on to that show and play their music they want to listen to or they want to share, to talk poetry, to talk about activism. This is going to be happening for the full month of June, and hopefully it'll keep on happening in monthly installments.
0: Awesome.
1: The website that we have is an extension of this by creating a place where people can share via Google Doc their links to their videos or copies of their poetry or photographs or paintings or music. And we're hoping that it becomes a hub where young people can see and share what drives them and what they're passionate about.
0: I have to say, like, the timing is incredible, around where we are in the world at this time. I also noticed a focus on mental health, too, which is something I think that we're all contending with from being in quarantine for a very long time, Mm -hmm. but also where we are in the midst of finally waking up to what institutional systemic racism is.
1: You've heard the ad is, when's the best time to plant a tree? A hundred years ago, Mm -hmm. you know? When's the second best time? Right now. Friends of Noise, myself, we've been thinking about mental health. We've been thinking about intersectional activism. We've been thinking about the nexus of art and activism for since day one. you ever heard the expression, I hate to be right, (laughs) I'd rather be wrong? I'm saddened that the world has continued to hasten towards a place where it's our youth that have to carry this burden. It's our youth that have to be overtly fighting for space where they can communicate with each other. But, and that's terrible, but that's where we are. So technically, you know, I'll be honest. And it's not that this is, oh, it's just all happening right now. This is like two, three years of, you know, behind the scenes work and getting us to a point where young people trust me, trust Friends of Noise, trust City Repair to help them create this space. That's the biggest part of the work that we do is building that trust. And that doesn't happen overnight. So you're right. For us to be able to create a space where black and brown kids and LGBTQ plus kids, refugee kids can come and talk about mental health. There are so many taboos all wrapped up in that, Mm. that were foisted upon them by their parents, foisted upon them by society, religion. And we're doing, hey, how do we break those taboos down so y'all can just be at peace?
0: Thank you for listening in to this episode of Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness. We appreciate you following the work we do and would love it if you'd share us with your friends and family. Your recommendation helps us reach more ears and build upon the work we're doing.
1: I see myself as a very resilient person having dealt with child abuse, having felt, dealt with abandonment, having dealt with isolation, being an only child and being a child, a latchkey kid. So I've dealt with a lot of potholes or a lot of traumatic things in my life. And I like to think that at 52 53 years old i've developed a level of vulnerability and openness like a safety valve i hope that i am able to release that negativity and that and and things that don't help me in a very safe way through talking you know how do you maintain your peace your calm when You've been dealing with, am I going to make my mortgage this month for three months in a row? And, oh, my kid needs this. And how do I provide that for them? And I don't know if I'll have a job six months from now because I work at a nonprofit that produces all-age music concerts as a, cont- mm-hmm. as a major part of what it does. And if we can't come together, then what? Am I going to have kids all standing six feet apart? And instead of having 200 people in a room, I have 50 people in a room. So in that context, it's been pretty frightful. I'll admit that I've been buoyed and supported by people that have reached out in one way or another to say, hey, how are you doing? I don't think that's a byproduct of my having a particular villain or excitable social media presence. But I hope that it's because, you know, we were all building community just, you know, three months ago. We haven't been able to do it in the same way. And, you know, the Zoom calls are helpful, but you know, I think we're entering into a real place of unknown. You know I mean? To some degree, the powers that be were telling us, hey, you know, this lockdown sequestering will last for, you know, two months or so. And then we're hearing from Dr. Fauci, oh, it might be six months until we get a, you know, a vaccine. And now you throw on to this, you know, what's happened to George Floyd and Mr. Aubrey and Brianna. And the truth of the matter is those things are going to happen next week. You know, those things are going to happen two months from now. And are we finally at a point where we've said enough is enough? And are we really going to, you know, strike at the heart of white supremacy where it hurts, which is at their resources, at their infrastructure? Are we really going to hit them in the pocketbook? I don't know. Early into this process, my mom moved to Arizona. She married a man about two or three years ago, and he has family down there, and they decided in you know, some fashion to relocate to Arizona. I think maybe in part due to the pandemic, but also, you know, she's the one, like I said, she has always been a very fiscally responsible, aware person. and She's got the resources to buy a house in Arizona. And that's what she's going to do. And I remember the night that she left, I cried because I said to myself, you can't know if you're going to see her again. Mm. You know, who knows what's going to happen with the pandemic? You know, I think she flew there And I had to have her car delivered to her and then she drove back. But who knows what was happening with air travel? Who knows what's happening, especially with older populations? So that was a real moment. Here we are in the middle of a pandemic. So many people are worried about their children. So many people are worried about their parents. So many people are worried about their friends, their coworkers, In a way that I think it is upsetting the natural order and the natural excellence that is America, that is the world, that, you know, we can get through anything. Here we are at a moment where people are afraid and people are maybe grieving and missing that feeling of it'll be okay. Because right now, a lot of people don't know if it's going to be okay. They don't think it will be okay. And then then what do they do? I remember that during the recession back in 2008, I saw a lot of middle-class white people turn to their... Lower class black people and brown people and say, How do you survive on this? <laughs> how are you? How do you do this? And we shared and they shared. And it feels like we're at another inflection point like that again. How do you deal? with the constant fear of going out your front door and having to cross the street when you see someone walk towards you. Mm-hmm. And now it's, you know, it could be a, a old white person who's crossing the street at a young white person. And now it's because of the pandemic. Ooh, I don't want to be too close to them. That level of constant fear, that level of constant awareness is draining. It's exhausting. And heretofore, it's been primarily black and brown people and women in particular and trans and all these other people who had to bear that constant weight. Now that weight is being shared by others. It's a new experience. And how are they processing it? And maybe it's increasing their level of compassion. Maybe the people we see marching and the people who are coming out of their cocoons and coming out of there, sequestering out of their homes, out of their quarantines, maybe there is a new level of empathy, a new level of compassion for Black Americans, for women who have been subject to over-policing because they know what it feels like a little more now than they might have in the past.
0: What promise do you see in this moment?
1: I see a promise of change to some degree. I don't know. It's weird. I mean, America is not the worst place in the world. There's a room for improvement, of course. But I think under this current administration, I think under the policies that neutered Republican Party is willing to sign off on, means that it could get a lot worse. You know, and whether it's, you know, overturning Roe v. Wade, whether it is, you know, ensconcing Laws that permit regular civilians to shoot black people with uh, Ill, you know with little regard. Um, those things, those conditions, could get worse. I hope that people realize that and they get up and they fight, however they can, whether that's marching, whether that's voting, whether that is you know resisting. Changing the status quo. Early in the pandemic, I started on my social media talking about not returning to normal, that the current normal was not working for me. I haven't had health insurance in two and a half years. I didn't have the savings to get through this pandemic. It's scary to think about that, but you know, I don't know how sustainable my life would have been when I turned sixty or seventy and I don't have health care and I have underlying conditions that could take me early, you know, and I don't have access to housing, to food, to so many things because I can't afford it. So I'm hopeful that through direct action, through people fighting, through success of this moment, that it inspires and propels people to take on the next moment. So yes, if we can create a society, if we can redefine policing, if we can redefine community engagement, maybe we can redefine education. Maybe we can redefine healthcare and take it away from insurance companies and mega corporations. Maybe we can redefine how we're governed. And maybe this moment is the moment of conflict, the moment that we need to succeed in that propels us to be successful again in a different arena.
0: Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness was created by me, Sarah Shaul, and is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn with music by Samantha Jensen. Subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts word of mouth helps us find new listeners. So please leave us a review and let your friends know about us. More information about this episode and how to contact us can be found in our show notes and at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You'll also find links to follow us on Instagram, Patreon, and Facebook. Join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you. a meal with others is my favorite place to engage in deep, meaningful, and fun conversations. On the Four Top podcast, three thought leaders join host Catherine Cole for a fast-moving roundtable discussion of the hot-button topics in food and beverage. The show covers a wide array of topics from farming to fine dining. The Four Top is a James Beard and IACP award-winning national food and beverage podcast presented by OPB for NPR One. Start listening now at thefortop.org, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.